Good morning, good morning. It's good to be back together once again. We are in, uh, we are in what is called the octave of Easter. Um, so it's kind of a nice, you know, that first week uh, is a joyous time. You have Easter Monday, Easter Tuesday, Easter Wednesday, and uh, lots of rejoicing here. Um, always, but especially in this first week of Easter. Today we are going to look at Colossians chapter 3. Um, there's, it's a beautiful chapter, uh, so if you would open up to Colossians chapter 3. It has a lot of Easter language in it, so this is timely. It worked out really well uh, to, to have Colossians 3. Chapter 2, if we can remember back to a couple weeks ago, there's a lot of baptismal language in Colossians 2. There's more in 3, chapter 3. And just remember uh, what we've talked about before about how the Gnostic uh, faith was something that Paul was really preaching against and writing against. And so, you know, that Gnostic spirituality was a disembodied spirituality uh, and so denied Christ's bodily suffering and death and resurrection. And so, you know, when you think about that, as I said before, um, you could fall off the horse on two sides. You know, Luther... Luther has this great. He 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 was always he was kind of a funny guy, you know. He he had these funny ways of of looking at things, and so Luther said that um, doctrine and teaching, false doctrine, is like a, a drunken peasant trying to get on a horse. Have you ever heard this? You know. So the drunken peasant's trying like mad to get on his horse, and he you know, hikes his leg up and gets over the horse and falls off the other side. And then he gets up and dusts himself off and then he hikes his leg up again and tries to get on and falls off the other side again and he's back to where he started. And, you know, Luther said that doctrine, false doctrine, is often like that. Um, You know, if you go too far one way, off you go. If you go too far the other way, off you go again. So, um, and so, you know, when you think about those Gnostics, um, these, you know, this, this opening, these opening verses, uh, verses one through four, really uh, emphasize this. So, uh, this bodily resurrection. And he, he, he connects it into the Christian's life. And that's an important thing that I'd like to talk about today. So let's read chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and then we'll, we'll make our way through. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, 
then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Okay, so that's chapter 3. Now, as we think about this, the opening verses, I, I have put on the handout, I believe it's on page t- on page 2, the breakdown of chapter 3, so kind of the middle of, of page 2. So what the way he breaks down this chapter is the first four verses are about resurrection and, and baptismal exhortation language. So he's reminding the, the Colossians of, of this. This is their life. Then in verses 5 through 11, he warns them of vices. And then in verses 12 through 17 is a reminder of holy virtues, which then lead back to verses 1 through 4. 
And then he rounds it out in verses 18 to 25 with the social duties of the new life, the, the different vocational aspects of one's life. And when we look at this text, it's, it, it is a beautiful text. And, and in the Greek, it's, it's striking because, you know, he says, if, if therefore you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above. You know, there's this constant going back to looking at the things that are above. Even um, in John chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. You know, that's kind of your typical English translation. In the Greek, it literally is born from above. It's, It's beautiful. And so... You know, there's this this idea of, you know, we we can get caught up in what's going on on earth, and that can become the only thing that we see. And sometimes it's hard to think about resurrection. It's sometimes in this life it's hard to think about the new life and that we are holy. And, you know, you have the, you know, he talks about virtues and vices. And so often we think about the things that we've done wrong. Uh, it's sort of a chronic problem for people. Um, whenever we suffer things, if we suffer uh, wrongs that we have done, we often harbor those somewhere in the backs of our minds. Uh, likewise, if harm has been done to us, we often harbor that in some way. And people are resilient in that we keep going and we fight through and we, you know, and even the the best and the strongest are like, well, you just got to keep going and you just got to keep fighting. And, um, but these things are still in our psyche, they're in the backs of our minds. They, um, they're hard to escape, right? And yet, what Paul is trying to encourage us to think about is that we are new and that we have this joyful, wonderful inheritance. And it's bodily. It's a bodily... in. You know, that's one thing, like... The Gnostics, as I've said before, they over-spiritualized everything. So, you know, you had to have, you know, the Gnostics were always hoping that they, each one could obtain this special insight, this special knowledge that is hidden. And they looked at the body as sinful. And so that would, as I've said before, you like the drunken peasant, right? You, you could go one way or the other. Either a Gnostic uh, practiced extreme asceticism where, you know, I can't enjoy anything in the world. Uh, and then the other side was, well, the flesh is going to do what the flesh does, so let's go have a big party and not think about anything that we do. <laughs> you know, and so how, do, how does one live in the midst of these things? Paul is encouraging these Colossians to push away from the Gnostic trends 
and think about what it is to be a Christian who rests in the resurrection and now rests in the resurrection. We are new and nothing can get in the way of that. Christ is our all in all. And this language in the first four verses really drive this home. So if we were to look at this, seek the things that are above. So that's what we're to do. We are to seek the things that are above. Christ is seated at the, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There's creedal language. And then in verse 2, it says, set your minds on the things that are above. This word in Greek uh, for mind is uh, phronimos. Uh, The verb is phroneo. And I put that down here at the bottom of page 1. And so there is a lot of language with this. You know, the Greeks were of the mind. And and the and the Jewish people were of the heart. So like the emphasis of the heart in one sense, emphasis on the mind in the other sense. So the Greeks would understand this language of the mind. Jesus talks about this though. Um, Paul talks about it in Romans 8, uh, where he compares the mind of the flesh versus the mind of the spirit. But on at the top of page 2... 1 Corinthians 4.10. I can just read this to you. You don't have to turn to it. 1 Corinthians 4.10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. So being wise in Christ is to have the mind of Christ. But then what you'll, as you remember the the parable of the the five wise virgins and the five foolish virgins in uh, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. The five wise virgins are called the phronimos. So here's the word. So they are the wise, the sensible. And the other ones are the foolish. This is the same word that Paul is using in Colossians uh, 3, verse 2, when he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And, you know, this is so important because the way we are wired as, as human beings that, you know, have sin in us and around us, is we often want to or feel the need to fix ourselves all the time. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but you know I've given pastoral care to people that have struggled with this where sometimes Lutherans feel like, well, I, you know, the Eucharist is really is really important and very sacred and very holy. And so I have to have myself in just the perfect spot. I have to be perfectly ready. My mind has to be in the right place. You know, my sins 
have to be, I have to confess my sins, which we do, but, you know, there can't be any spot or stain on me as I approach the altar. A lot of Lutherans feel this way. I, I have to be ready. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, now, we do have to, we, we do confess our sins, receive absolution. We do recognize it's the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, right? That being said, that sacrament is for the weak and the thirsty, it's precisely for those who do not feel worthy. It is precisely for those who need help and strength and care. And so we ought not fear approaching this. And we seek then the things that are above And so how do we seek the things that are above? Well, the liturgy lays it out for us because, you know, you have confession and absolution at the beginning and then the liturgy, which we sing and speak, is, as you know, filled with scripture. And then we're led to the lectern and then the pulpit. And so what's happening is everything that's going on in the divine service that is leading up to the Eucharist is directing our minds and our hearts to the things that are above. So it's beautiful. Paul's saying, Seek the, set your minds on the things that are above, seek the things that are above, and then the liturgy does just that. And then in verse 3, it says, You have died, for your life is hidden together with Christ in God. I mean, all of this is thoroughly baptismal language. You think about uh, Romans 6 and being united with Christ in his death. Colossians 2, very similar. And, you know, the, the language in the Greek is amazing in and of itself because you died is aorist tense, past tense, So it's already happened. You died. Your life has been hidden. For you grammarians, hidden is perfect tense. It's a completed action. So you see, this is how Jesus is. Jesus never leaves us hanging. And, you know, he never dangles a carrot and says, I'll give you a little bit now, but keep going, you know, I'll give you a little bit now, but you got to get more. He gives us the whole thing. And then our lives are this joyous respite in Christ's death and resurrection. And in Greek, life, you know, there's different words for life. So there's um, bios for life, which is like biological life. But then the life that he is talking about in verse 3 is the Greek word zoe, which is often used for the spiritual life. So we have a new kind of life which we are already living. And then in verse 4, when Christ is revealed, who is your life, then you shall be revealed with him in glory. And so it's the revealing of Christ who provides the revealing of your saintliness.
your holiness. So think about Easter and how Christ's death and resurrection comes and is like an imprint upon your life. Yes. I think one of the favorite, my favorite passages is Romans 6, 11. Mm-hmm. Dead to sin and alive to Christ. Yes. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive. Yeah, Romans 6.11, consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. It is beautiful. Yeah, it is so beautiful. And then we get to the next string of verses. And it's interesting how he does this. So verses 5 through 11 is one section. And that begins with a verb. And it's put to death or take the life out of it. Section verses 12 through 17 also then begins with a verb, clothe yourselves. And so what he's doing is he's reminding them the fact that you live in this resurrection and your life is new, just keep this in mind. These are the things we stay away from. These are the things that we clothe ourselves with. And, you know, technical stuff... I don't know if this makes any sense, but so both verbs, the verb in verse 5 for put to death and the verb in verse 12 for clothe or put on is in past tense and it's an imperative. Now in Greek, when it's a past tense like this, it it views the action as a whole. It's like a snapshot. So it's like, it's not looking at time. It's just like, You know, it's sort of like saying, these things are dead in you. These things are clothe you. And so it gets to vices and virtues. And the vices and the virtues are very interesting. Um, The early Christians, the early church talked a lot about this. And they had a particular way of thinking about it. So, like, there was Gregory of Nyssa was one one of the church fathers And he said that the origin of evil is not otherwise to be conceived than as the absence of virtue. So let me just kind of put this in our own words. Gregory of Nyssa is saying that evil or spiritual darkness is simply the absence of all that is holy and good. It's like privation. Um, So let me show you just a little something here. The way that the way that the early church understood vices and virtues, sin and holiness was like this. So privation, the privation of good. And so the privation of good would be here is the holy teaching, all right? So it's kind of like a stair step. And I do this with, um, with college students. You know, we'll talk about, you know, we'll talk about the sixth commandment, for example. And so, you know, you think about intercourse and the way God ordained it. And so intimacy, the way God has 
laid it out, given it to us, is to be a man and woman within the, within the, the framework of marriage. That is the way God designed it, right? And so this would be what St. Augustine would call the greatest good, the highest good, um, the highest virtue in terms of sexual relations. And so then evil is the privation of good. It's where darkness starts to creep in. And so what would be one step down from intimacy within the framework of marriage um, would be like if a couple says, uh, we're not married, um, but we have intercourse, but we're committed to one partner. That would be one step down. But it's the privation, right? It's the darkness starts to creep in. It's a privation of the highest good. Does that make sense? But then the next, what would be the next step down would be um, casual sex with many partners. That'd be the next step down, perhaps. And so each step, the darkness creeps in more. It starts, it's snuffing out the good and the holy. And then you could go down one more and say, um, uh, you know, what would be the next step down? Um, prostitution, maybe. And then you could go down one more and, um, you know, you could say pornography. or. And then finally, then, what I often do with college students is I say, what would be like the the next one down from that, and, you know, you'd say rape. And what's interesting is this is the highest good. Each step down gets the darkness creeps in, darkness creeps in. And even in the minds of people, like if we pulled people out on the street, a lot of people would probably say, this is good, this is acceptable. Um, Less people maybe would say this, but still a lot. Less people would say this. Hopefully no one would say these things, right? But the way society is, somebody would say these things are fine way down here. So the, this is the way... So to the early Christians, Gregory of Nyssa, St. Augustine, darkness chokes out the light. And so... You know, we think about, in this chapter, chapter 3, we think about who we are. And we are Christ's holy ones. We live in the light. And so we don't, we confess our sins and we receive absolution and then we go. And St. Paul, the words that he uses are so very interesting because if you look at the bottom of page two, I list them in the Greek and then the English. So the vices are these, fornication, impurity, sensual passion, lust, evil, and then what's... uh, in verse 5 in the English, mine says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In Greek, it's selfish greed. 
But in the Greek text, you have all these words, but selfish greed is the only word that has the definite article. And the reason it has the definite article is because he's saying, you all know about this one. (laughs) He's like, you know this one really well. And it's true We all know that one really well. Um, What this word means in Greek for selfish greed or covetousness, it comes from a word that means to have too much. And you think about to have too much, and what does it breed? What does too much usually breed within us? Power, pride, yeah. Greed for more, exactly. Yeah. There is just not enough. And then, you know, to great care and concern. And it, I don't know about you, but, you know, too much care and concern can be like its own darkness that just like takes over everything, you know. And then you worry and you know you stress and then we become anxiety ridden right i mean you can just feel the darkness just sort of creeping in and yet what would be if you were to do this backwards and you have selfish greed what would be the highest good and this by the way this little exercise, you could do this with anything. So, you know, you could do it with tithing. You can, you know, anything. And so selfish greed, what would be the highest good where there is no darkness? Okay, love. And I would add one more thing. Love and trust, right, for God. Knowing that he'll take care of you, right? He will provide everything that you need. Yes. You just you give everything to that. You, you instead of doing this, holding it to yourself, you do that. Yes, exactly. It, that's that's very good. So it goes from this right, this binding sort of thing where you close everything in and you hold on to opening up and looking to the other. And, you know, in a way, the end of the chapter, which talks about the duties of husband, wife, you know, and everybody, it sort of plays off of this. In a way, what Paul is doing is he's saying, you know, he talks about wife and he talks about husband and and all the others. In essence, what he's saying is, um, don't let things choke out the good but look out in a way because like I think I've mentioned this before but well I yeah I have mentioned this before but the picture is in in the Hebrew when God brings Eve to Adam remember I've talked about this and Adam looks into the face of Eve and he sees himself 
and Eve looks into the face of Adam and she sees herself. Um, the, the Hebrew word is neged, which literally means from before the eyes. And so this, and that's the word that in English is horribly translated as helpmate. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not that. The picture in, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve as they're brought together is the picture that we see in Colossians 3, seek the things that are above. In other words, don't go like this and look to the ground like the animals, but open yourself up and look out. And as you look out, you look into the face of God. And when you look into the face of God, you are free Right? Because when we look at the things on the earth, we start to close in and we worry and we despair and we fight and we war. But we are to look outward. I mean, really, I think in some way, whether Paul meant this or not, I can see the connection. He's trying to get the Christians in Colossae to look outward. Look up and out instead of at the self. But let's take a look at the virtues. And what I am just continually marveling over is how these words, these virtues, are first used for God. Either either God the Father or Jesus or the Holy Spirit even. So the idea is, well, let's look at let's look at them. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and in Greek and be Eucharistic. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I mean, it, these words are so beautiful. So the first word... Um, so, be clothed as the elect, okay? As the elect of God, holy and beloved. So, you know, hagias is the, is the word for holy. So, he's saying to the Colossians, you are hagioi. You are, you are holy ones. So, you know, think about that when you think about yourself. 
You know, when you think about the world and you think about, you know, what you're going through, what's happening in your life, um, if, you know, you think about maybe if you feel empty or hollow uh, or you're struggling or, you know, you are filled with, with the worries and the cares of this world, just remember that you are hagioi, you are holy, and to be holy means that you have the imprint of Christ and his resurrection upon your life in the body. And then beloved, so it's the divine word for love, agape, but it's in a participle, it's in a passive participle, if that makes any sense. So it's a participle, which means it's ongoing. So you're beloved, which means it's an ongoing belovedness. And it's a passive voice, which means it's being done to you. So it's a love that is outside of you that is just like this beautiful casting, this beautiful, gentle casting upon your life. This is your life. Do you think of your life like this? This is your life, where you are holy and this beautiful casting of divine love just keeps rippling upon you and over you. And then he starts to rattle off these words. So compassion in Greek is splachna, and as I've mentioned before, this word splachna is used for Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000. So there he is, and all these people are streaming towards him. And he, it says that he feels compassion for them, for they are like a sheep without a shepherd. So this word is an internal word. It is like the very core of Jesus feels compassion for the people. But then keep in mind, with the feeding of the 5,000, how does Jesus address the compassion that he has in his core for the people? He teaches them and then he feeds them. Sounds like the divine service, doesn't it? It's beautiful how this all comes together. Then you have this compassion with bodily presence. And this word is used in, let's see if I can find it. Hmm, I'm not going to find it. It is used. I believe for the Heavenly Father. All right, I'm having one of the... Oh, it's in Luke 6, verse 36. It's the same word. So the word, let's see. In Luke six thirty-six, this is how it reads as a translation from the Greek. Be merciful... Just as your father is merciful. 
That's Jesus talking about the Heavenly Father. It's the same word in Greek, merciful compassion. And as I've said before, so this compassion differs from the, the one that Jesus had, the, the internal one, because this word for mercy has the word house at the beginning of the word. So what it means is the Father's mercy is the kind of mercy that comes and dwells in your life, right here, definite presence. No question at all, just definite presence, okay? So one's, one compassion's internal, one comes out and takes a seat and permeates your life, okay? Then is uh, kindness, and I see how it is in the Greek, kindness. Uh, this is used in, for G- Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, I think it is. Where is it? It's the, um, it is the section... Where, gee, where is that? You know what? Some days, you know, the mind just works and sometimes it just doesn't work. It's, um, it is that chapter where Jesus is talking about worrying. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, of Matthew. Oh, no, it's not that one. It's the um, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Where, where is that? Eleven. Thank you. All right. Yeah, there it is. Thank you. So what happens here is, in Matthew 11, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy is the word for kindness. So it's kindness, but it's useful, it's beneficial. It imparts something. The kindness of the Lord is that he gives you a gift. He gives you a gift. And it's useful for your souls. And then humbleness. And then meekness. And the word meekness is used for Jesus, who um, he is, he, well, it's used in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, But then it's also used for Jesus in another place. So it characterizes Christ. But it also characterizes God's people. Because even to the point where in Numbers 12, verse 3, it's talking about uh, Moses. And the people are getting all upset. Miriam and Aaron, gets, they get mad at, at Moses. And so it says then, they say, 
has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And then it says of Moses in Numbers 12, verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. So it's the same word. So this meekness is the characteristic that is placed upon and into God's saints. So we become different as the Lord's light and his resurrection begin to permeate our lives. We become different as we rest in his love and we experience how the Lord always takes care of us. God is doing his work through the word and the sacraments to open us up to look out and to look above and to look around and we see the love of Christ. We see how it becomes us. And as it defines us, we find ourselves at peace. And then it leads us to the next word, the next virtue, which is patience. And I hope you don't mind all this Greek stuff. Like, I just can't... I, I know it's like technical stuff, but I can never get my, my mind away from it because it's just, I don't know. You know, I've, I've always said like the Greek text is like watching TV in HD, 3D, you know, plasma color, you know. And so like this word in Greek for patience, okay, so this is the word that is like anger, right? Like, uh, right? Whatever it is, like some kind of passion. And how, how do we deal with the things that come at us? Well, you know, I don't know. Pastor Bruzek doesn't, re- I don't think he remembers this. But I asked him uh, my last week of vicarage. I said, okay, if you can give me like one piece of pastoral advice, like just one little nugget, like what would it be? And he was standing in the hallway and he says, Vicar, if you cannot react, that would be a good thing. <laughs> and I'm like, really? That, you know, but then I went into the parish and I'm like, oh, I totally get it. Don't react, right? Because when you react, this is what you get. You get the, right? It's either fear, anger, fight, flight, right? Sadness, frustration, right? And patience, so macroeconomics and microeconomics. Microeconomics deals with something real tight and close, right? Small little sector. Macroeconomics looks at the whole picture, the big wide picture, right? So this is macro, macro anger, okay? So in other words, this kind of patience is things come at you, what do you do? Take a step back, look up, right? So back to the Colossians 3, look up, look out, look at the resurrection, look at who you are, you're saints, you are beloved, And the belovedness just keeps flowing into you. So think about those things before 
you engage this. That's patience. Now, that is the whole passion of Jesus Christ, is that word. So we see within those three holy days, what we call the sacred triduum, you know, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, we see macrothemia, the patience of Christ, and we see what happens. And actually, it goes from his arrest, right? Arrest to beating, to carrying the cross, to dying. Even the prayers in the garden. The prayers in the garden. Yeah, sweating blood. You know, this is the patient endurance of Christ for us. And he endured it all. And now we live in the resurrection. That's your life. So when you, when you are overrun by the troubles of the world, uh, your own sin, struggle, pain, the past, those things are on the earth and in the past. Think about the resurrection. Because the Eucharistic meal is proclaiming his death and his resurrection, right? It is the victory. So we come and we, we push off all the things. We confess our sins, we're absolved, and we are focused on the heavenly gifts which we receive in the Eucharist. And that's why I think... I don't know if you caught this, but I said it. I translated it in Greek. Verse 15. And the peace of Christ, let it be confirmed in your hearts, in which you were called in one body, the church, right? In the body of Christ. And then it says, and be thankful. And it's, and be Eucharistic. Be Eucharistoi. Be, Eucharist is really good graces, the really good grace of Christ. Yes, Kathy. I have my mind is going to go in so many circles today that I can't say what I'm thinking about. But it seems like a lot of my life I'm, I'm trying to do the later book mm-hmm. when it comes to vices and virtues. And like, I'm thinking of it, I have to take this off. It's like my work of taking this off and putting this on. Instead, what I do is like, so I'm angry. So instead of opening up and putting it off, I just clothe gentleness, which is really, or patience, which is more like, if I'm in the South, I'd say, you know, bless your heart. Yeah. So me thinking like, okay, today I have to put off malice. Yeah. I hope that works out good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not put on my fake 
gentleness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is part of why Luther in the catechism, when he's talking about baptism, you know, and he says, you know, daily we rise, right? And we, we drown the old Adam, right? I mean, Luther understood this stuff very well. The things that I'm talking to you about today, he understood this grace-filled life. And it's, so you get up every morning, you confess your sins, strip it all away and let the, let the baptismal robe of Christ rest on you and go forth knowing that you are saints, you are hagioi, and that you are beloved. This is your life. This is the life of the church. This is where we live. And we are free, yes. Well, I guess it's like, and maybe this is just my own, I don't know, perfectionism or something, but I guess it's like, I hear that, and, but then I still feel like, yeah, but I want to stop being so impatient. <laughs> <laughs> like, when does that ever change, though? Like, um, and, and maybe it's, you know, kind of realizing that you are just daily confessing. But I'm like, you know, I've been thinking for a long time like, about not being reactive. You know, like yeah. Super said to me, like, "Hey, Aaron, just don't be reactive with your kids." I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> "That's a hard thing." Yeah. <laughs> patience put on, like, I desperately want to be patient, and I'm not. Yeah. You know? And it's like, I I constantly want to see the change happening. Yeah. You know, but then I feel like, and the other. Yeah. It's kind of the recognition, right, that it's, you know, we do struggle with these things, but, um, and we all do, you know, I have strong perfectionistic tendencies myself, and so I'm always, I'm always kind of, you know, thinking about this, you know, um, and so how do I deal with this? Well, you know, that's, when, it, when he says be Eucharistic or be Eucharistoi, um, in verse 15, I think what he's getting at is let's take it to the Eucharist. You know, all these virtues that I just mentioned, be Eucharistic about it. In other words, take it to the Eucharist. So we pray, right? So you think about, you know, my reactionary responses, my frustrations, my perfectionism, and you know, how do I deal with it? I pray about it and ask the Lord to help me. And then I go right to the Eucharist. And it's at the Eucharist where Jesus is dealing with our prayers. And he's working it out. <laughs> and I mean, you know, if we could just be like children, you know, children, you know, they're joyful, you know. <laughs> uh, I think part of Part of our struggle is as we age, uh, it can go two ways. As we age, sometimes all of our experiences bind us up, um, but the holy attributes as we get older, if we're praying, going to Eucharist, resting in Christ, thinking about the resurrection, then we learn how to live in the midst of these things and be free. And I can, I will speak to my, my own, um, my own experience. 
which is the Lord, by the grace of God, by his grace, has taught me a peace that I didn't used to know. So my encouragement is keep at it and rest in the resurrection because apart from myself, the Lord in time has given me a peace that I didn't used to experience where I was always just like bound up and beside myself and freaking out all the time. I don't do that as much as I used to. And I attribute it truly to the Lord in his word and sacrament gifts, shaping and changing me. And that's the life of sanctification. You know, if you think about justification is what we call imputed you know, where you get the whole thing all at once. You're justified, you're saved, you're holy. The life of sanctification is ongoing and increasing, if that makes sense. And so the Lord continues to shape you and change you in time. And that's the, that's the gift that we have. I mean, there is... And so I see we're out of time, but... Let me just leave you with this. What I love in this text is how the virtues Paul is leading you back to God. That you see the virtues in God, in Christ, in the Heavenly Father. And so as we think about these virtues for our lives, where do we go? We go back to the Lord himself. So let's close with prayer and then the benediction. Almighty God, by the glorious resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, you destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Grant that we who have been raised with him may abide in his presence and rejoice in the hope of eternal glory. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.